You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. been up to for the last three days i've been re-watching all of peter capaldi's episodes and enjoying them so much i almost cried at the end of every episode have you been re-watching all of peter capaldi's episodes and have they been so good you almost (laughs) cried at the end of each and every one of them like say for people boxing yes excellent (laughs) simon yes i Um, haven't oh Lee, uh, on the subject of Peter Capaldi, then, Zinner's time doesn't have anything to add. <laughs> no, not. All right, seriously, then. You've yeah. been rewatching all of his episodes. Mm. And did they stack up? In what way? Well, uh, it's been six months since they've been on. Were they as good as, better than, not as good as you remembered them being? Yeah, when we when we first watched them and we talked about them, those were instant reactions at the time. I was quite scared to go back and rewatch them because I thought they may not be as good as I remembered them being. And actually, they're they're a lot, lot better. I mean, everything, even the Forest of the Night. Uh, in the Forest, is that what it's called? In the Forest, forest of, of the, the Night. night. I've been it, talking to a tree. <laughs> I've been chased by a tiger. Oh, for goodness sake. He came running after me. <laughs> Let's talk to Lee. <laughs> Can the we forest no. of the night was <laughs> in the forest really, of the night. In the forest of the night was really <coughs> enjoyable because I was looking at it as a fairy tale. I had to re. I was doing the thing where I was just blocking all the things that I didn't like about the episodes and really trying to enjoy them for what they were. And they're just they're just all really good. The mummy on the Orient Express, um, mind blowingly brilliant piece of TV. Unbelievable. It's just brilliant. And even Death in Heaven and all the ones that I was a bit down on because of, at the time of watching it, I had somebody pass away. So it wasn't really, it's too dark for me. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, the whole series is so utterly strong. And Peter Capaldi's acting throughout from start to finish and and uh, Jenna Coleman. Oh, yeah, I got to the end tonight and it's, it's yeah, I can see why, why everybody was voting up top in the last podcast mummy on the orange express no all of people oh sorry yeah Peter, the last podcast got, we did got, yeah yeah it was <coughs> top jenna was the series was i totally understand why it's 
as as a piece of TV, even not Doctor Who, just a piece of it's just phenomenal. Well, and you know that's perhaps a sort of nutshell type target going on there, because when it came to the end of the series, people were expecting it to be a Doctor Who ending to the series. And actually, it was a, we've been telling this story about these people end of the series, and the last episode was all about the people, rather than all about the sci-fi. Mm. And I think that's why... There's a lot of heart in it, there's a lot of passion in yeah, it. Yeah, but I think that's, that's why some people came down hard on that last episode, because it wasn't the sci-fi ending they were expecting. No. It was more like the end of a series, I don't know, some costume drama or something. It is dark. It plays with really dark stuff, and it plays with reality, which we don't want in Doctor Who because we all we all just want to escape reality. We don't want to see reality on our doorsteps. We want to just go out into space, which is quite interesting because we'll be coming back to Rose soon, I'm sure. Which is all. Are you preempting where this podcast is well, going? It's going to be called something like that, isn't it? So I'm sure people know what we're going to be talking about. Oh yeah, I suppose. <laughs> no, because I'm going to talk about. It's yeah. going to be called Peter Capaldi six months on. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> I think it's you, you've you've pointed to something which is that sometimes I mean you said oh I viewed it as a fairy tale but I think the 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 trick is just to let let the story do what it wants to do. Mm. I mean if it doesn't, well that's the entire. There, there point. are small things you can pick out out of every episode. It's like mm, that's not very good. Oh that's not very good. Mm. But actually, I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking, why, why bother? It's just, it's, just let it flow. Let what it, let it wash over. Let, let and enjoy the, it. Yeah, yeah. Let it do Stop what it's trying to do, and just enjoy it as a good piece of tea. Well, you know, and then I'm sure there's people maybe listening to the podcast saying, yeah, but then you get uh, the moon is an egg and stuff like that. And it's just like, so, well, well, let let the moon be an egg then. I don't. I, you see, that's never bothered. And me. And if you go, oh, that's a silly idea. Well, it's a silly idea in your head, but in the writer's head, it, it, it and it does. It makes sense. Hmm. If you don't like it, that's fair enough. But but the moon's but, an egg, and we, you know, but it, it che- we we realise this in twenty fifty or twenty forty nine in 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 story, in the story itself mm. in the Doctor Who chronological thing, it's fifty years ahead, so it's not affecting anybody, is it? Doesn't matter. The moon's an egg; it still looks like the moon. Yeah, but again, you're finding those connections that don't need to be there. Don't it's just like there. the moon. Just enjoy it. Yeah, just let it go. I mean, there's stuff that doesn't make sense. Like you know, for me, it was. All of a sudden, the moon was all back to you know the, the the dragon thing came out, and then the moon was all back together again, and I felt like it was a, a jump, but that's that's not the story. Yeah, that's... and if the moon lays an egg, uh, sorry, if the dragon lays an egg, and it's a dragon for a little bit of time, you know, how does that affect the tide? Are we going to get pulled off there with the gravity? You know, if you want to go into the science of it, oh, go this watch, is the series that Mondas going for a wander around the whole frigging universe before coming back with his atmosphere intact. Yeah, you want science? You want pseudoscience? Go and watch Star Trek. This is Doctor Who. It's a different kettle of fish all If uh, you want pseudoscience, go and watch The Sky at Night. <laughs> <laughs> well, or anything with What's-His-Face from uh, Two Unlimited or whatever they were called. <laughs> what were they called? Pseudoscience by some of those slimming pills. What's he called? Cox. Brian Cox. Cox Brian yes. Cox. What band did he used to be in? Dream. Dream. Oh my God! They can't even pronounce the word "dream" correctly. I'm not going to take <laughs> oh, any notice terrible. of anything he says. They were terrible. <laughs> oh dear. But the thing is, you know, they were the. They were the what, what's that? There's a record <coughs> that keeps being played all the time. It's going to get better. Was that uh, his? No, no, no. There's a record now. That used on every though, advert it? and every TV program. Like they've only got one song. Oh, I can't remember yeah, what they're called. Probably by a tune. But they're kind of like the modern version of Dream or M People. Is it by Ellie Boulding? <laughs> <laughs> 
The affected mm. voice. Uh, there's nothing worse than affectation. I don't know. So, so Hayley, the thing is, this this what, could make for bad reviewing in the future, can it? If if I keep saying, I don't know. Ah, just let the story just, be just the, story. Let the story. Be the yeah, star. just let it do what it wants to do. Yeah, let it watch over you. Enjoy it. But uh, no, I just what amazing. Right, let's move on. I think we'll take an email now. Oh, at the end of the last podcast, Friends Part 2, I said we have one email, let's do it at the end of the podcast, but then we forgot. So here is that email now. It's from David Kitchen, and he doesn't start his email, good day. So I've not to read this in an Australian accent, Mm. even though he's Australian. Yeah, best not. Okay. Dear Blue Box team. That's New Zealand, isn't it? Once again, I'm using my annual leave to travel overseas. I learned somewhere as a boy that travel broadens the mind and enjoyed the company of your Eras Part 3 podcast on my drive from LA to San Francisco. Wow, that's cool. I agreed with much of what you said, and even when I didn't, it was interesting to hear your views. Especially fitting was that I was listening to JR's tribute to Leonard Nimoy as I drove away from Vasquez Rocks outside LA. <laughs> Did I pronounce that correctly? Or do. Vasquez. Yeah, I think so. Arguably most famous as the location of the Star Trek episode Arena. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, thinking about it on the drive, I thought that there were a few more Doctor Who eras that match Beatles records. Because we must have... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, the Williams era would be Yellow Submarine because it's both underrated and a lot of fun. The Lambert era is the Please Please... Oh, and Recycled. And it had a weak B-side to the album. Well, it was all the classical, all the George Martin stuff. Gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah, I I love the the classical stuff. (laughs) What's the weak... It wasn't a Beatles What's the weak B-side to the Graham Williams era? Most of it. Oh, but I thought you were making an actual analogy there. No, no, I was just being... Um, Facetious. That's the word. Uh, <laughs> Lee. JR. Look what's in the corner. Something exciting in the corner. Oh. Go, 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 go. Oh, what? I'm just trying to get rid of you for the next five minutes so we can get on and do this. Should be shiny. The Lambert era, says David Kitchen, is the Please Please Me album, already innovative with memorable classics, but still clearly an early work. The JNT Stroke Sayward era is the White Album. Ooh. Both what? feel a bit too long, a bit overproduced, and feel like they're trying too hard. No way, man. The White Album. Yeah, it's there is some filler in there, I have to say. It's probably Revolution number album. nine, that's it. Everything else is brilliant, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, well, they would do it in the row, rubbish like that. Brilliant. Oh, you try singing it really hard. Well, it might be really hard, but that doesn't mean it's any good. Do you know what always gets my goat? When you say to somebody, somebody will be like, oh, one of my favourite records is, and I don't know, they'll say something like, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever. Something awful, awful. No, 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 I'm talking awful, awful. What's the name of that Scandinavian band that did Roxette? Oh, somebody at work. (laughs) A rock set came on the radio and this guy at work was singing along once. This was years and years and years ago. And I turned around and said with my most heavily sarcastic voice, oh, rock set, they're my favourite band, they are. And he said, oh, really, they're mine too? (laughs) (laughs) Then you were stuck. But the point is, if somebody comes up, I've got to stop saying the point is, I say that like six times an episode. You're only on your fourth. Keep going. 
Uh, anyway, the point being, if somebody... See, I varied it. If somebody's singing along to something dreadful and you say, that's dreadful, they'll say, no, it's really good. Mm. And you'll say, what's so good about it? And what will they give? They will say, oh, it's really catchy. Mm. You'll say, yeah, like Agadoo is really catchy. You know, but that doesn't make it good. Catchy doesn't make it good. And in the same way, difficult to sing doesn't make Why Don't We Do It In The Road any good. No, but it's part of the appeal of a singer. Listen to a singer trying to sing it, and you try singing it, and you can't. And you think, oh, Lee, right. I've heard your CD. I think you're over-egging <laughs> the pudding somewhat when you describe <laughs> yourself as a singer. Why you go on from Titanic is hard to sing. It doesn't make it any good. I've been waiting for years to jail. It's actually a good piece of music. Mention my CD. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you might not like the Celine Dion reading of that piece of music, mm. but it's a good piece of music. Okay. Go along with that. Why has it got a good tune? <laughs> it's Jerry Goldsmith, oh, isn't quite it? quite catchy. It is Jerry Goldsmith. But he was forced into a corner with that. I think James Cameron said, do it. And he went, all right. Well, yeah, but if you're being paid to write the score for a film and... That film is of that not, ilk. Do you know what? You're absolutely right because where no, the other way where that appears mistake. elsewhere in the film is very affecting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, and sorry. I think it's my mistake. I think it was the other way around. Actually, oh, I Jerry think, Goldsmith wrote um, it and, and told and said, yeah. And I'm sure that Cameron said, no, I don't want any. Song no, Fox probably actually said you've got to put it. words to this and use it as a song on the end credits. Yeah, I'm sure somebody out there. That's what my pet hates. That is records that sound like that were originally instrumentals and people add words to, and they're just Jerusalem. Yeah. Or what's the one? Yeah, I'm not based saying it can't on... be done properly, but there's things like um, I'm thinking, thinking about a lot of dance records actually. Toka's Miracle and stuff like that just sound All like they now the farm. Oh dear. <laughs> Oh my Don't god, that's that. awful. <laughs> oh no, it's dreadful, dreadful, dreadful record. It's not as good as Groovy Train. Yeah, come on. Oh! <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mind it. It's my, my sphincter just clasped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't thought about that record for years. Now oh. It's, oh, get on, get on, get on, get on, get on that Groovy Train. It's a, it's a, oh! it's a great record. It's not necessarily a great song. There is a difference between a good song and a good record. You sang it like a robo man. Oh, my sphincter's actually rubbing itself. Oh, it's not nice. So, anything else in that email? That image is too much. Yeah. Anyway, go on. But yeah, the White Album. There is a lot of filler in there. Like... I'll tell you something else about songs like "My Heart Will Go On," mm. and I'll tell you what a really good example of this. Examples of this is Always by Bon Jovi and <laughs> Everything I Do by Brian Adams. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but your okay. reaction to them no, no, no. is everything that you've I do, heard them so many times. When that I, Everything I Do first came out, I thought, my God, Brian Adams has actually written probably this the second good song that he's ever of written. his career, yeah. After, what was the one? The one where he's in a cinema in the video. I can't remember. But anyway, there's one. But the point of it is... Oh, I said it again. Jesus. <laughs> the thing of it is, if you <clears throat> if you drink tea and you like sugar in your tea, right? Two sugars, whatever. Mm. Right? You can drink tea with two sugars in it for time immemorial. And you will always enjoy your tea with two sugars in it. Mm. But because you like sugar, you wouldn't put 15 sugars in a single cup of tea, right? No. And that's what's happened with songs like Everything I Do. It's a decent song, 
But it is not the best song that's ever been written. But you have heard that song more times than you've heard the best song that's ever been written. Mm. And eventually it just gets to the point where it's like having 15 sugars in your cup of tea. You've had enough of it. Unrefined sugar is terrible for your immune system. Says Brian Adams. Bad for your immune system. (laughs) Yeah, but then he did that dreadful thing with Mel C. Mm. Oh, God, dear. I was in a covers band and I was made to play that. <laughs> no, you weren't made to play that. You, you know, could have left that. that band. I could have left the band. Yeah, yeah but could, it's supposed to be in a democracy. You could have not said that. A thousand people have just heard you say that now. What? That you did a cover of Brian Adams Melsey. <laughs> <sighs> Actually, I just joined the band. They were already playing it, so it was one of those. What were you playing in that band? I'm not even going to ask. I just did ask, but what I mean is I'm not even going to ask for an answer. Well, I did ask for an answer, but what I mean is I'm not expecting it. I don't need it. Thanks, don't give me the answer, because you were playing the keyboards. I did, yeah, because they didn't... Hey! Have I even got my answer, even after I said, please don't give me the answer? See, I say hey at the beginning. I didn't say hey, I said hey. (laughs) What? I don't understand this game. I don't know what's going on. Uh, oh, I am home. David Kitchen carries on and says the JNT stroke Sabre era. Oh no, we did that one. The Lloyd and Letts eras are Rubber Soul and Revolver. Great albums that really develop their own style and build off each other. The Sherwin era is the Hey Jude stroke Revolution single. One hundred percent classic, but both songs are maybe just a little long. Mm. Mm, that's agreed. Hinchcliffe is of course Sergeant Pepper. He says Sergeant Pepper, but actually the correct abbreviation for that album is Sergeant Peppers. It is. Because it's Sergeant Peppers, Lonely Hearts Club Band. Anyway, he says... In reputation alone, I'd say. I don't know. Anyway, he says it's the one everyone remembers as being the best. Is that true of Sergeant Peppers? I think so. I don't think it is the strongest album, but if everyone says, what's the classic Beatles album, they say Sergeant Peppers, don't they? It's probably a good analogy, because Sergeant Peppers steals everything from everywhere. And so did Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Yeah, fair dues. And actually, as we discussed when we talked about Hinchcliffe and Holmes three weeks ago, whatever it was, it wasn't just that they stole everything from everywhere. They made it better. No, they didn't really add anything. They didn't make it better. They made it palatable to an audience who were susceptible to it. Yeah, just like Sergeant Pepper. <clears throat> you did that deliberately. <laughs> but taking what had gone before and putting it through all manner of filters and experiments and all that sort of thing, so it appeared like it was something new. Well, Sergeant Pepper's was largely musical music, really. Mm. Mm. And what they did was they made it palatable for a 1960s audience who were susceptible to it. <clears throat> just as Hinchcliffe and Holmes took horror movies of the 1950s and made it for a 1970s audience. Yeah, except they weren't half their tits, were they? Hinchcliffe and Holmes? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking I'd love to be able to say that. I've been having a few flashbacks, though. <laughs> it's Tom Baker who's off his tits. <laughs> <clears throat> Sugar rushes. Come on. Yeah. I was going to make some kind of really bad joke about what happened later on during the Graham Williams era with Tom Baker and Tits, but mm. I shan't go yeah. there. Sue. <laughs> the JNT stroke Bidmead era is Let It Be. Different, amazingly produced, perhaps a little too serious, but with many individual classic songs and a sense of impending doom across the whole thing. <laughs> that's, that's very good. 
Very good. Really good. And the Cartmel era is Abbey Road, going back to just having fun, making good songs before it's time to stop. Mm, okay. And, um, yeah. Which I guess, says David, makes the TV movie The Free as a Bird single they released in 1995, <laughs> a one-off song that tried to capture the old style, but in the end was missing something. And then he goes on to say, so where does that leave the new series? Well, I would contend that the new series is like the One Direction albums. <laughs> a boy band singing pop songs with at least as much success as the Beatles, that are even more successful in America, and of which fans of the original band's main complaint is that they're not singing the same songs as the Beatles were in the 1960s, even though music and TV have changed massively, and that was never going to happen. See where he's going with that. Yeah, I disagree <clears throat> with One Direction analogy. Well, see, when he says One Direction, you think, oh my God, what's he saying? But actually, when you read the rest of his analogy, it makes perfect sense. Indeed, One Direction's fourth album is just like New Who's fourth Doctor, a bit more mature, more serious, and with lots of deliberate references to the 1980s. have four albums. Christ. <laughs> well, these bands, they... <clears throat> pump the albums out once a year don't they these young bands they have to because they'll sell a lot of albums you know they'll sell a lot of albums when the album comes out but five years down the line five years after they split up nobody's mm. going to be buying them anymore they don't like something like Blur or the Pet Shop Boys I'm looking at Simon now because he likes Blur and the Pet Shop Boys Blur and the Pet Shop Boys right mm. they're still selling copies of Park Life and um Please and actually and yeah, yeah, actually, Park Life and actually is still selling copies now, right? Yeah, but One Direction's second album, third album, ain't gonna be selling copies in five years, let alone ten. Only on um, compilations of some so, kind, retro compilations. David hasn't written One Direction in that last few lines. He's written One D. No, he wrote One D there. Which, he which wrote is, One Direction. Okay, One D is actually what the fans call them. He so knows. He David, knows. His is stuff. David a big fan? What? No, I think he knows enough of his stuff to uh, be able to get away with doing that because he wouldn't have been able to make that analogy if he didn't. Yeah. I think he's got. <clears throat> I think he's got one up on you, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> you put the middle finger down now, Jay. That's all right. <laughs> Hopefully, says David, that's entertained you in return for you entertaining me. Regards, uh, David Kitchen in California rather than Melbourne. Brilliant, David. Thank you. I'd rather use Girls Aloud as an analogy because they make better albums. The team, Cinemania. Yeah, but they better. don't. They're not bigger in America. That's kind of the point. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, his point. Yeah, no, I take his points absolutely. I think it's a great point. I think he made it very well. Okay, we've got more emails, but we'll save them for later on, because we're here to talk about. Well, oh, Lee, you've not heard the last podcast. No. What was that about? That was Friends Part 2. Have you listened to it, Simon? I haven't. Part 2. I've heard Part 1. Right. Because at the end of it, I said, right, I've no idea what we're doing next week. And up until yesterday <laughs> evening, before we record this, <laughs> I still had no clue what we were doing. And in fact, we hadn't even organised to meet, had we? No. No. It was quite last minute. Yeah. Because things have been so crazy hectic. And I just kind of let it slip my mind. <laughs> so here we are. And what we decided to do was because... Oh, well, last Thursday, as we record this, was Ian Martin's Rose at Ten thing, right? Mm. Right. Where we Does everybody know what that is? 
Well, I'll just about to explain it, Lee. Oh, okay. Did you notice how when I got I to what you thought was the I end know. of that sentence, I actually carried on talking? I know. I know. I know. <clears throat> you started it and I realised that I'd interrupted too early, but I'd said it by that point. And I knew we were going to get to this point again. So let's just <laughs> edit this bit out and you can start again. <laughs> Not going to happen, Lee. I don't do edits. <laughs> right. Do you know that shiny thing in the corner? Shiny. <laughs> Okay, last Thursday, as we record this, was Ian Martin's Rose at 10 thing, where, because it was the 26th of March, 10 years to the day since Rose was first on, um, he asked me if I would organise an event on Facebook where people would watch Rose at 7pm and then afterwards would make a donation to the Terence Higgins Trust, which was Russell T Davis's charity of choice, on his appearance on Toby Haydock's Who's Round. And so I organised that, and lots of people pledged to watch the episode and make a donation. And in the end, the Terence Higgins Trust actually emailed the following day saying, hey, where are all these extra donations coming from? <laughs> so I guess it was a bit successful. Yeah. Well but because I was busy launching the new You and Who book that evening, and it was uh, rather more popular than I was expecting, really... I didn't get a chance to sit down and watch Rose. So instead, I suggested that we three sit down and watch Rose this evening and talk about it. Mm. So if you have your legally purchased copy of Rose in your DVD player, you can press play in three, two, one, play. And you'll be watching it while we're talking about it. But we actually watched it about an hour and a half ago. So we're not going to be commenting over particular bits of action. <laughs> so you're kind of wasting your time putting the DVD in the DVD player. But if you have, hey, you can watch Rose while you listen to this. So everybody wins, right? To select audio navigation, press enter now. I think you missed your window on that. They've already pressed play on the episode. Oh, oh here comes the TARDIS. I like that bit. Oh, look at the time tunnel. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <clears throat> right, so we just watched Rose. Yeah. That's a photograph. <clears throat> okay, I think I've lost control of this now. Take control. Okay, what I think we should do is because we just sat through the entire episode, I think we should talk through it. Sort of, not quite scene by scene, but talk through the episode chronologically and say, 10 years on, what works, what doesn't work. Which bits were better than we remembered them? Which bits were less good than we remembered them? And kind of then generally sum up on how Rose stands up 10 years on. And I know this is probably the most cliched thing you can do on a podcast, but we had 24 hours notice and nothing prepared. This is unusual for us to pick out one episode. So we're talking about your career, down. aren't we, Lee? <clears throat> what? 24 hours later and nothing prepared. <laughs> That's about right. General thoughts first, though. Simon, mm. did uh, 10 years... When was the last time you actually saw Rose? Well, I watched it, obviously, tonight. And I also watched it last Thursday with my daughter. Um, but before then, it was probably about two or three years ago, because I sat down with her then. She, she just got to the point where she could talk, and I thought, yeah, that's about time that she watched Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was literally like that. She wanted to, because she knew I was into it. She said, "What? what is Doctor Who? Can I see Doctor Who, Daddy? And I built it her up to it really and she she behaved herself and I said would you want a treat and we sat down and watched it so and then afterwards she said that was brilliant daddy and ran upstairs and cried no 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 she loved it she didn't no no she she thought it was great 
and some lovely reactions going on and I'll talk about those when we get to that point in the episode um, but I thought it stood up extremely well far more than I thought it would Lee, because about... I thought it would date but I don't think it has yeah let's get to that in a minute yeah Lee how about you when was the last time you watched it it was quite a long time ago I suppose maybe two or three years back I think it's probably about five years for me yeah maybe about the same actually because it's when Finn started actually buying the DVDs right so I was watching it with him again and he was going oh this is oh this is like the olden days <laughs> obviously because it felt like a long time for him um he was only five when he watched it first so it was quite interesting watching it with him but I kind of forgotten about the first season we've talked about it a lot and we use our memory quite a bit but to actually sit and watch it with the way that we're talking about and analyzing the series now it's quite interesting tonight um I thought it held up really, really well. And you're right, it doesn't date as much as I thought. It looked, because we watched it on a bigger telly than I've ever seen Pretty it on fresh. before, it looked a lot better than I was expecting it to. Because when I've revisited Series 1, you know, since since it moved into HD, basically, and since Stephen Moffat took over, and they obviously made a production decision then to use more modern film techniques. Because mm. Ross T. Davis stuff, there's very little handheld... There's very little in the way of sort of camera jiggery pokery. There's a lot of soft yeah. focus, isn't there? Yeah, a lot soft of soft stick, focus. Yeah, yeah. And I was expecting it to look a bit. I was expecting you know, when I've seen grainy. Well, when I watched Father's Day not that long ago, and it looked like the bloody wet planet. There's so much soft focus in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or on the, Star, the old Star Trek series, every time they showed a woman. All of a sudden, somebody's got the grease out on the camera lens. True. Yeah, there was a lot of that, actually, yeah. I was expecting this to look a lot more like that than it actually did. No, this this felt really quite fresh. It was almost like it was, a, as it was intended at the time, to be something fresh and new. It did feel fresh. And if this was on TV now as the start of Doctor Who, it wouldn't feel out of place. No, actually. it wouldn't. Not really. Is it, the only th- mobiles. Well, the only thing, and the only other thing that's different is it would be in HD. Yeah, but actually watching it on that telly, mm. you know, because you were playing it through a Blu-ray player, right? So it was upscaling. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So even then, it actually looked not that far off HD, probably. Mm. No, certainly wasn't aware of any pixelation without getting. No, no. <clears throat> it looked pretty good. Right, first. Right, let's go back to the start of the episode and work our way through it. Mm. First things first. This is the episode that kicks straight in with the music rather than having a pre-title sequence. Mm. Right, before we talk about the music, I think the decision not to have a pre-title sequence actually was the wrong one. Because you have pre-title sequences on all the other episodes apart from, I think, Martha's first episode. I think that does the same, if I remember rightly. Okay, yeah. I think that would have worked better if there had been something pre-titled. So do you think the opening scene would have been better as a pre-title? So no, because it doesn't work. It doesn't function like that. It would nothing off the, if, yeah. if you were going it to pass me off the, the building explodes. If yeah. the There's nothing the the episode's written not to have a pre-title. Yeah, exactly. No. If you're going to have a pre-title, it would have to be something else that was written specifically to be there. For example, you could have an auton attack on somebody in the shop. And not show the Auton okay. or what the Auton is. You would basically have maybe a security, maybe Wilson. Maybe you have Wilson the previous evening, 
Because when Rose, okay, we're jumping ahead a bit, but mm. I mean, let's be honest, everybody's seen this episode, we're not messing around. If Rose is looking for Wilson at the end of the day, and he's the electrician and he's been killed by the Autons. Yeah, show that. Show that. But don't show that it's an Auton that kills him, just so Wilson getting into trouble and getting killed by something. Mm. So we know already that there's something in that shop that's killing people, right? That doesn't spoil anything for when Rose goes downstairs at the end of the episode. In fact, it probably enhances that bit, because when she goes down there, they have to sell us the fact that she's going to be scared of something mm. by having their room empty and Wilson not there and the door slamming shut behind her. If we already know from the pre-title sequence, then as soon as she gets in that lift to go downstairs, we're already thinking, right, she's on her way in towards trouble. So I don't think it spoils it. Well, none of us are expecting it, though, because that this was the first episode, so we yeah, didn't yeah. know what to expect. If there was a pre-titles, then that would have worked, and we would have got quite excited about it, because it was like, oh, we've never had this in Doctor Who before. Um, and you're right, the Wilson thing's pretty good, because it would heighten the um, uh, the threat. But actually, again, we're jumping ahead, but that, that walk through, we were all just completely silent watching it, and I was taking back ten years, holding you know my yeah. palms really tight. Into but a you'd fist still have had that. Really, you know, it's you'd good. still it's have had it. that with a pre-title sequence. Yeah, but my it. point. Do it. My point. Here I am with that word point again. The it's, point I'm coming just, towards just here here's, is. Here's the thing. In I tried that one earlier as well. <laughs> in this first episode. What you have is Russell T. Davis knowing the things he has to sell to the audience. The fact that the Doctor is an alien. The fact that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside and that it's a space-time ship. And what he does is he teases the audience with these things before he sells it to them. So we see Christopher Eccleston. I mean, for non-fans who aren't necessarily au fait with the lore of Doctor Who, they'll know that the Doctor's kind of something odd, but they're perhaps not quite aware that he's an alien from outer space, right? I mean, a lot of people know, but, you know. My point being, oh God, I've said it again, that Russell T. Davis teases us with the fact that Christopher Eccleston is playing somebody who is apart and different before revealing that he's actually an alien. And the fact that he's playing an alien ties in with the fact that he's a part and different because also what you're talking about is the dual meaning on the word alien alien as in from outer space or <clears throat> alien as in from another country but also alien as in alienated different so he's playing with these things but he teases was he teases us with it first like he teases us with the tardis but what he doesn't do and the thing that almost everybody who knew what was coming was looking forward to when they saw that episode, we all knew the TARDIS was going to be in it, and we'd seen pictures. We all knew what the inside of the TARDIS was going to be like, more or less, because we'd seen the trailer. We all knew what Christopher Eccleston was going to be like, because he was in the trailer, and we'd seen short scenes that they played on things like Jonathan Ross or whatever. The one thing we didn't know what it was going to be like going in, what was the theme? What was the opening title going to be? That was the one surprise. Mm. Instead of teasing it, it was with a 30-second pre-title sequence. You know, that bit where the BBC One logo goes down and the BBC announcer says Doctor Who, you're thinking, right, music, title sequence. And it gives it to you straight away. Mm. 30 seconds. 
would just have been nice to make you think, oh, what's it going to be like? Oh, what's it going to be like? Oh, what's it going to be like? Mm -hmm. Because that, and yeah, this is not something you think about, but that sets you up for the rest of the episode. Because then you're thinking throughout the entire episode, oh, what's it going to be like? And you've already met Christopher Eccleston, so you know, but you're still asking what's it going to be like. Yeah, he's drip-feeding you brilliantly through this episode. I think it's perfectly... Um... And he spoils that one thing by playing it right up front. <clears throat> Not that I'm saying it spoils the episode, but I just think that was an odd decision. I'd have to see it in practice, because maybe it's a thing to do with the fact that he was using Rose as the entry point. She was the companion. She <coughs> was the eyes with which we were going to discover the Doctor. So as a completely fresh... You know, if the pre-title sequence... Has somebody else in it. Yeah, maybe. But then maybe. An Unearthly Child is Susan through the eyes of Ian and Barbara. Mm. But it starts off with the policeman walking through the junkyard and walking past the police box. That's all it takes, just 30 seconds. It's funny you say that, and I, I was thinking you wouldn't even need to have any story. You could just have the police box there and the yeah. other camera going towards it. And well, well, you knows? have that after Maybe. Henrix blows up, don't you? That's the, that, yeah. that's one of that's the best, really nice, that's yeah. That's one of the slickest reveals. I, I just wasn't expecting it the first time. No one was. So when she runs past it, she doesn't know what it is. She doesn't have to know that it's a space-time ship with a huge inside. It's just a police box. And again... It's that thing of, oh, if you stick a police box anywhere, who's going to be bothered to look at it because they don't know what it is? So they just walk past it, and it's true. It's lovely. Mm. Well, there are so many things you see in the street. Yeah, when workmen are, <clears throat> you know, you'll see small sort of marquee-type tents erected and mm. toilets. I always and... wonder what's in there. <laughs> toilets. <laughs> and time travellers. That's a good name for a book, isn't it? Toilets and Time Travellers. Dougal from Magic Roundabout, wasn't it? Could be. In the goodies, wasn't it? In the goodies. Oh, oh was it with the bike? <laughs> yeah. Oh, were, it was the bike, wasn't it? See, the thing about pre-title sequences is, <laughs> I like, this is my personal thing, and I suppose it would be dull if it was like this all the time, but I like to come into the story with the TARDIS crew and find out what's going on as they do. So... Even something like The Unquiet Dead, where you've got the pre-title sequence in the funeral parlour leading up to the old woman going down the street and her mouth opening. I really like that because I want to see that when the Doctor sees it or when Rose sees it, right? But having said that, it's a tremendously funny scene and it really works. So I'm not saying... So I'm not saying I wouldn't want things like that not to be in there. Uh, maybe somebody will go out and do a fan version of um, Wilson getting murdered at the beginning. Well, listening we, to this podcast. We may see it yet. And that'd be quite fun, wouldn't it? It'd be quite good if the doctor was involved, but you don't actually see him. You just see his hands or something. He's paying for something in the department store. Bottle of champagne. I, I, I mm. don't know. I mean, I think yeah. the, the only way it would work is the way that Jazz just said, is you have a yeah. character that's nothing to do with the story, but is part like of Like one of these minisodes in some know. respects. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Mm. Exactly. You, you can't introduce any the way it's been introduced to me I don't think you could mess around with that it's, he's obviously thought about it long and hard <clears> how he's going to bring Doctor Who back and how he's going to introduce it in that one episode so many things he had to get in there so many important things so many important things he had to tell in that short amount of time without over-egging the pudding like Paul McGann's episode did 
and he manages it. He manages to squeeze all these things throughout. You know, he talks about the TARDIS, talks about the war, all, all this kind of stuff. He says his name's the Doctor. <clears throat> I mean, the th I'm just really curious as to how somebody who's never seen the series before doesn't know anything about the series or what it is when they first see the guy in a leather jacket with the ears you know a bit of a skinhead going i'm a doctor or i'm the doctor are you gonna mishear us i'm a doctor doctor why is he called doctor who are you gonna be ruminating over that name for the whole episode or, or what is it a, yeah because it's, that's it's what rose does yeah and beautifully and that's <coughs> what gets him, it's rose that actually talks us through it for the new person who has no idea why this series is called Doctor Who. It's lovely. <laughs> Very well paced. One thing I'll say about this is Keith Bogue, he's got a lot of stick for his direction. Mm. I thought this was sublimely well directed. Yeah. It yeah, is. And I don't question it at all. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe the... Um, uh, we're going to jump right to the end if we're going to be talking about direction. Doesn't matter. Um, the only thing I, I have a beef with is the kind of the end part, which you didn't... You, you said the same thing, oh, that I you? flagged up. You flagged it up. The very, very thing at the end. Yeah, but that's not an editing decision. That's not nothing to do with Keith Boak. Uh, there's the slow-mo at the end. Yeah, but, no, But also the, the talk with the nesting was a bit... That could have been cut shorter or could have been directed a bit more interesting. But the rest of it is beautiful. The, the thing with Clive in his shed, the really kind of um, great bits of close-up and, and two-handers and things. Are you talking about the camera work? Camera work, yeah, direction. The, the, the actors themselves would have been directed by this this chap. You, you know, it's quite important to get the tone right and the feel. I think he had help with the fact that, um, uh, that you know, Christopher Eccleston is such a great actor anyway, and the chap who plays Clive and you know Billy Piper, they're all just surprisingly incredible actors. Who's now so, presenting a quiz show at three o'clock in the afternoons on BBC One? The guy who plays Clive. What's he called? His Mark Benton. Mark Benton. Is he really? Yeah, with um, bowling. What? With bowling. <laughs> bowling. Bowling and questions. And Mark Benton. I've got to watch this. It sounds great. He does way too many ITV dramas. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. Surprisingly, it really works. I like him. I like him. I like him a lot. I he's he not... Just, I just wish he did less ITV. He's not a quiz show presenter. <laughs> so... But he's more natural than Mark Williams was doing something in the same slot. And I think it's an improvement on Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> Anyone can do, if Anne Widdicombe can do one. <clears throat> he asked questions and then can people we... bowled balls and then he asked more questions and then they bowled more <laughs> balls. Like, oh my God, it's on the cusp of Pets Win Prizes, isn't it? It really is that kind no, of... No, it sounds like Bullseye, but the slower version. It actually really works. It's surprising <laughs> how involving it is. I've got to watch this. This is what you could have done. Hang on a minute, we just wait for the contestant to get up off their knees. Well, one of them did actually. Is it the lawn other day. bowls and skittles? No, it's all indoors on the studio floor. <laughs> you have to see it. I, t I would explain it, but it take ten minutes, and I'm sure people okay. don't want to listen to Is me. It's just called cool bowling. It's called the edge. <laughs> Be the hedge, wouldn't it? Usually it's Which hedge is not a film with Anthony Hopkins and one of the Baldwin brothers. I, I tell you what, I, I'm sure you're winding us up. No. Okay, just like anyway. really likes Bowman. That's all right. Move on. <clears throat> um, can we go into the episode then? Because uh, I'll... all right, I wasn't finished on Keith Bogue. Yeah. Oh, go on then. But I tell you one thing he does because this, these three episodes, this and the two Aliens of London episodes, are the ones that famously caused the ruckus that uh, 
ended up with Christopher Eccleston deciding to leave after one year, apparently. Right. And this was because of the production. And we don't really know much more than that. But we also know that the production had fallen behind by the end of the first two days or something. It was already a week behind or something ridiculous. And people say now, well, that's fine, because what happens when you start a new series is you're finding your feet... And you don't know how long things are going to take, and you do that first block, and that gives you an indication, and all this kind of stuff. But the point that I'm coming towards here is that there's a lot of coverage in this. Do you know what coverage is? That's when you have a scene that's... Say you have a scene between two people Mm. sitting at a table, and they're talking to one another. And say you will have a long camera shot, which shows the two of them on the table... And one camera over one person's shoulder looking at the other. Oh, I see, yeah. And the reverse of that. Right. Yeah. Coverage uh, is the phrase that is the word that refers to how many different camera angles you've got. Okay. Okay. So that when you get to the edit, Mm. you've got coverage so that you can choose which camera angles you use in the edit, right? Mm -hmm. And Keith Bogue, and it's true of Aliens of London and World War Three as well, there's a lot of coverage. And you watch scenes like, I don't know, Mickey in the restaurant with the yeah, headless. That, There's a lot of different camera stuff yeah, going yeah, on yeah. there. Mm. You watch later episodes in this series and you watch episodes in series two and three and four and there are far, far, far fewer camera angles going on. And you notice on. it. Yeah. You do notice it. You don't realise you do, but you do. <clears throat> because what Keith Boak's doing here, and this is why they fell behind, is Keith Boak's making a feature film. And I think it shows, I think it looks like a feature film, much more so than anything after episode five. I think Dalek. When I first watched the series back in 2005, Dalek was the first one I found disappointing. And that's because Dalek doesn't have the coverage. And coverage, when you've not got handheld cameras, coverage is what gives you dynamics. Dalek is a really undynamic episode. And as good as the script is, I don't think Joe Ahern sells that episode very well as a director. There are lots of really long, ponderous Quite shots static. of the Dalek trundling along in long shot, you know, for seconds and seconds at a time. Sure. Whereas Keith Bogue would do something fairly simple, mm. like I don't, the bit where Rose comes out of the restaurant and the TARDIS mm. is in that courtyard in that space Mm. and she goes running around it and the camera's going cut 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 all throughout that scene none of those none of those shots are up on screen for more than two or three seconds before it cuts away to somewhere else now if you do that all the time and alex proyas did it in dark city he did that all the time i think that entire film is not a single shot that lasts more than three seconds Mm. and it becomes nauseating if you do it all the time if you don't do it all the time, if you use it for effect, the way it's meant to be used, it's really effective. Mm. Which is different than an affectation. This is affectation. <laughs> <clears throat> but the... I'm not going to say it. But what I'm saying here is, Keith Boke, he's got a lot of stick because he directed the first three episodes, which is the three cartoony episodes. But I don't think you can lay the fact that they're cartoony episodes at Keith Boke's door. No. He's not the guy who wrote the wheelie bin. He's not the guy who wrote the space pig. He's not the guy who wrote the farting aliens. Those aren't Keith Boke. 
Keith Bogues, not the guy who couldn't do the special effects on the Slitheen, so that the CG Slitheen looked completely different from the prosthetic ones. Yeah. Keith Bogues, the guy who gets all that coverage, who gets those performances, mm. and the performances from Billy Piper and Christopher Eccleston are what sold that TV series yeah. to an audience that was prepared to buy into it enough that it got renewed for a Christmas special in its first year. Yeah. And that is down to Keith Boke getting those performances from those actors. Going back to that, the email, it's the same as getting the catchy singles early in the career and getting the people to kind of get what the elements of your sound is. And, if and then you start putting the meaty stuff in. Yeah, and yeah. if you do that, if you're going to... Yeah, running with that analogy, if you're going to want your first single to be a big success mm. you have to really punch that up you can't just release a you can't release just a mid album filler track as your first single mm. you've got to release something spectacular so you've got to get somebody to come in and do a spectacular job on the production mm -hmm. and that's what they do with Keith Boak I've yeah. seen other things he's directed and they're equally as well directed that's a good entry point if, if it's okay to um I've always <clears throat> taken issue, and we've always disagreed a bit about this, Lee, about the music at the start of that episode. Yeah. I still think that, you say about it, it's very filmic, but that's the only thing that ties those scenes down to make you think, oh, this is a BBC TV programme. Um, and then, funny enough, when we were watching, Joe, I mentioned the yeah. remake of Run the Hot Kirk, where David Arnold's music, considering he's somebody who composes music for a film, Bonk. the music in that series sounds very... TV, very four by three rather than sixteen by nine. I know what you're saying. Yeah, it has a lack I... of expanse, and it sounds it's, too busy. There's no it? space in the sound. Well, the but when you but, when you open, go on. What I was going to say was, I kind of appreciate why that's happened because for that very same analogy that you've got that kind of catchy thing, is that music isn't necessarily to do with what's going on on screen because I don't necessarily think it. It's kind of exciting music. It's all a bit James Bond. It's got that, you know, that, that sort of 60s riff going on. Um, but it's more to do with getting the cus the, the customer, I'm saying the customer, the viewer, into that headspace. Yeah, into that headspace of this is a bit of fun, this is an exciting programme, this is what we're going to do. But actually on screen, what's happening isn't... It's edited what's fast, happening on it's... screen is very dull in those first two minutes. It is, yeah. But what the music's doing is saying, stick around. Yeah. It's it's like an advert. It's done. It's done primarily to get you into the story as quickly as mm, possible, mm. Um, and to the and to the point as quickly as possible. Which is her being under threat and then meeting the doctor. Yeah. If you look at it, what is it? Two minutes, something like that. And they tell an entire. They tell the entire story of where Rose is in her life at that point. Complete it's, working day from waking yeah, up to yeah, finishing it. No, absolutely, with the boy, and I, with I the boyfriend can... with her dull life and with the music. It has to just be. I think it's a personal thing because I understand time. why all those elements are there. You have time to be that creative. No, but I think the the music is cheap. It sounds cheap. Just a question to you then. So yeah, what, but okay. Just before you yeah, go, yeah. it sounds cheap. Well, to mirror the life that she's living. I think to mirror the life that she's living. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, like I say, I'm I'm not actually being critical. Because, like, it's more my taste. But because in episode two, the end of the world, you suddenly get Rose's thing. 
Oh yeah, no, and it's stunning. It is stunning. And that's why so I'm pointing out the difference. Yeah, here's Rose right. before she meets the Doctor, yeah. and it's ding 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 ding. ding. Um, and here's ad- Rose after she meets the Doctor, and it's beautiful. Admittedly, yeah. that's the only time he ever do- pulls this kind of trick. I think. Yeah, no, Murray Gold doesn't you may really well be do right it. Then. I don't think at all. He doesn't. Through. No, so from then on, this is the only time it sounds a bit like um, a bit like a kids' TV show. Cheap. I know what you mean. It's yeah. Kind of d- 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 yeah. But my question to you is, what kind of music would you have put over those two minutes? No, you're absolutely right. I'm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't make it. I mean, you look the only at, thing that it's you like Edgar done... Wright. When Edgar Wright makes his cuts of boring things like turning on the tap, opening the door, he does this great thing where he just doesn't bother hanging around. It's just like chunk, 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 mm. chunk. Mm. Um, we don't get to hear music. We get to hear all sound effects, right? But if you were going to put music over Edgar Wright's scenes, uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, whatever, quick stuff of getting out, putting on your hat, getting out the door, what kind of music would you put to it? It's almost impossible. I think so I probably would have just... Fast. It has to be... I do think it's a personal thing. I think I just would have made it a little, little bit more contemporary, a little bit more edgy. The um, only other choice you could have made for that opening scene in Rose is to have put an actual pop song. Yes, well, maybe. that might have worked actually. No, yeah. but I'm. But I think the reason they didn't, because they could have done very easily. I think the reason they didn't was because they wanted to save the first pop song of the modern series of Doctor <laughs> Who for episode two, yes. yeah. so it had more effect. Yeah, sure. yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not in the least bit being critical of uh, Mr. Murray Gold because I just think he's a genius. But it's just that it's just that one section of music. Just and at the watching at the time, this is probably where it comes from. Watching at the time. It started and that music came on and thought, oh no, oh no, please don't let it be this kind of squeaky. Oh yeah, see, I talked about this last week and I'll repeat it just in case anybody missed it. When I saw the Randall and Hopkirk remake in 2000, Mm -hmm. I thought then, because that sort of slightly jokey but taking it seriously enough that you could get involved in the plots and engage with what was happening and having... Lots of familiar faces playing largely against type in mm. most cases, mm. sort of against type, but bringing their personality into the program so that the entire thing was slightly larger than life and it had that kind of Avengersy feel, right? Mm. But kind of updated for the modern day. And that music, the music that they used in, I don't know, did David Arnold just do the theme for Randall and Hopkirk? I'm not sure. I don't think he did the think... incidental, did he? I don't think he did. I think somebody else did the incidental. I'd have to check. Might even have been Murray Gold, actually. Mm, Who mm. knows? But that and that kind of the music from that opening scene in Rose very much to me reminded me of music in Randall and Hopkirk. Yeah. And it was that larger than life, cartoony, yeah. slightly caricatured feel, but not to the extent that you couldn't engage with the stories. No, no. And I thought in 2000, watching that, if they bring Doctor Who back, this is how they have to do it. Yeah. Slightly larger than life. But not so much that you can't engage with the stories, and that and this cheap and cheesy thing yeah. is the way to offset the fact that it's not going to have the same budget as a big Hollywood blockbuster. No, I've kind of got the same feeling that the few times I watched it's <clears> the <throat> Spooks. There are times moments in Spooks where you, you feel like they're trying to be filmic, but they're not quite getting there because it's on a BBC budget, and you get that same, ooh, you know, yeah. it's not quite there. Yeah, yeah, that kind but, of DIY mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling to it. But also, the, I think that. The speed of the music when it's when it finally stops, yeah, and she hits the button for the elevator or whatever it is, and she's then in the the passageway where the autons are. There's no music at all. It's yeah. silent. And when she and suddenly hits, you're like, hmm. when she hits that button on the lift and the music stops as she presses it, that signals 
this is where things change. This yeah. is where your life begins. Yeah. And it's a great bit as well, and we all noticed it because we looked at each other, where she goes into the shop and suddenly the music's being piped through the speakers. Yeah. And then when it goes back to her <laughs> outside with Nikki and it's back to the music being on the soundtrack. Mm. Fantastic. That piece does come back in at the end, though, with the Ortons and the... the um, where they start winding down because it then goes into yeah. the kind of, that kind of clockwork thing. Slightly different, isn't it? Slightly different remix, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's a similar kind of music, mm. but it never appears again. And, and on the just on the subject of music, the opening uh, music from Murray Gold, the Doctor Who theme, the theme, the yeah. new version of the theme. This is this is something that when it first cracked in, I just remember hearing that scream of of, of the you know. <laughs> I mean, I was really worried we were going to get another Paul McGann uh, orchestral, orchestral, which had a drum beat to it. Just, it just sounded like Jeff Love. Oh, well, there's yeah. nothing worse than like orchestral <laughs> with pop drum beat. Mm. It's just weak. What was weak clever weak. about that new version was they used quite, they used quite a lot of sections of the original thing. The original, yeah, there's quite yeah. a few yeah. samples in there. In there. Yeah. You yeah. hear it all in there, yeah, even the mm. end bit. The which is exactly what, you know, yeah, that is exactly what you oh. do. In 2005, you remix the original yeah, and bring gorgeous. it up to date. So yeah, fantastic. I think yeah, I think he did a really good job it's of very mixing the samples he'd taken with the music they'd written, so mm-hmm. it sounded organic and. And this is this is the thing. I mean, it, when you start with something so powerful, because it's a full orchestra playing the Doctor Who theme. No, it's not actually. That's all synthesized. That version it, of it, the orchestra. It sounds it? like a full orchestra playing the full. Yeah, thing. yeah. That's what I meant. Sorry. With uh, with the original over the top, okay, and then you get the visuals of this, this TARDIS bouncing down this vortex, which at this point, you know, we can't tell whether the CGI is naff or not because it's moving so far. It doesn't matter. Titles are coming up. The new logo comes up. The shiny new logo, and it's oh wow, this is massive. It sounds big. It's huge, and then you look at the uh, the Peter Cavaldi. Everything about this the, that last series is excellent. I feel apart from the <laughs> apart from the music, it's but it still, doesn't sound organic. It just yeah, it feels all yeah, the themes up weak. to Matt weak. Smith's first one, the one that went through the ponds. They all sound like organic yeah. mixes of the original, and then Suddenly. as soon as Clara turns up, for some reason they start going with really synthetic. <laughs> Yeah, this starts sounding really synthetic, and uh, I don't like it. I know. Why change? It's the whole ga- grandeur thing. It's the Star Wars effect, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, broke. Don't the... fix it. No. Yeah, you're right. It is. It does feel like the beginning of Star Wars to me. It's the same kind of. It's the best theme that 2005 to me. I like the one with the guitars in that was in from Voyage of the Damned onwards. Still really good. Mm. Yeah, no, it's basically the same thing. It was a great Static process, guitar, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really like the first Matt Smith one. I hated that when I first heard it, but actually that's probably my favourite of like all it. of them. Yeah. Like Which one are we talking <clears> about? <throat> is that the one with, uh, with the... From the 11th hour. With Which the sort of fiery it? tunnel. Oh, with the electrical storm. It was more, ele- yeah. it was more electronic, wasn't it? There's some sequence. No, it's that. electronic, but it still sounds really organic. It does, yeah. Because... It's kind of it sounds like electronic punk. Yep. I did I actually hated that, but it grew on me after a while. Yeah. I hated it when I first heard it and by the end of that first series I was like, Oh no, I was so wrong about this. The Capaldi one's the only one that jarred on me because I, you recently watched it all. Did 
did you did they change the mix because it always it felt like they changed the mix after the first couple of episodes didn't, didn't sound like started... i think jay was right the last time he spoke about this which was about half a year ago mm. uh that we got just got used to it i think i don't think it's changed i seem to remember the drums sounding really weak on it and it didn't yeah. seem to be no. have the, the rhythm but I think it's still do at the end, week. probably. Yeah. You're just listening now for them, or maybe, I don't yeah. know. Probably, yeah. Well, maybe they do. Just... The credits are good. You know, the, the comparative credits are fine. It's just the... Even the clean clockwork stuff. I'm it's very okay tricky, with. isn't it? Because they, they kind of hit the nail on the head with 2005. So anything yeah. after that is going to be really tricky. That's what I mean. You start at 10. Yeah. You've got to continue being at 10. It feels like Capaldi's down at six but, now. But give it time because, like the Starfield, the Starfield Vortex, I, I love because it was of its time. But you know, you compare That's it true, to the actually. to yeah. the Tom Baker Vortex. Mm. It's no comparison, really. Yeah, let's not talk about Colin Baker. <clears throat> but the thing is, on the original series, they used that original version of the theme with a few slight tweaks for the first seventeen years, more or less. Mm. precious little changed about it mm. and while I'm not saying they should have just used that original theme now because in this modern day and age if you would stick that version of the theme on the telly yeah. people would turn off in droves Yeah. but by the same token 17 years and barely made a change to it really and yet last 10 years how many different variations on that theme have we had five six yeah i mean it's fun to get different versions of it and once you get the albums you put them next to each other it's actually quite fun listening to all the different variations and themes and and what he did with it but i don't know you're right i think the 2005 hit the nail on the head maybe the the voyager the damned version that was probably the ultimate actually in in soundscaping it's fantastic it's big enough so why change it but uh yeah, as soon as that hit, I don't know about you guys, back in 2005 when it first came on, I was just on, on almost on the floor, I was on my knees going, oh my God, I love this already, I don't care what happens next. <laughs> Again, it might be why I found it so jarring when that music came in, because it was, I yeah. suppose, poppy. Yeah. But Is that the word? Like you say, maybe that was the point. Yeah. Right, shall we talk about some of the people who are in it? Mm. I don't think we need to talk too much about Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. Because let's face it, much has been said, but we talk about them for a bit. One of the things I flagged up when we were watching the episode just now was the scene at the end where Christopher Eccleston is inviting Rose aboard the TARDIS mm. and he plays it as a shy 14-year-old boy asking a girl out on a date for the very first time. Well, Lee, when I said that, you just nodded, didn't you? <laughs> it's, yeah, that was me. But that's how he plays it. <laughs> you recognised the rejection, didn't you? Because there is that... There's there that moment of rejection, and he, That's right. honestly, it looks if like he's going to cry. If only I'd come back and said, it also travels in time. I think I might have nailed it on the head. But there's a tightness around <laughs> it his eyes. It also gets bigger. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a on the tight, there's a tightness around his eyes and his mouth. He's forcing himself to do something yeah. that he's really uncomfortable about doing. Mm. And he plays it beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's very really measured all the way through, isn't it's it? It's a really weird thing to see the doctor doing. I mean, if you were being that if you were being fan about it, you'd probably look at it and go, maybe he's seeing the timelines around her, and it's he's not quite sure how he's, he needs to get on board. He knows she's important. But, oh, lots of people no. Have said, no, no, it's not that. Bollocks. It's just really good acting. It's just beautiful acting. Isn't it is. It? It's just yeah, yeah. It is, isn't it? It's just great. There's it's some awesome. moments in the episode where you feel a little bit he's playing for laughs. I like that. But, I yeah. like that because it's awkward. Yeah. yeah. When he does the walk, the one thing I always had a problem with for ages was he does an extra smile 
You know, he, he says, yeah, hello, yeah. here, I'm the Doctor. You can't see it on a podcast, but he does an extra smile. What was his head? For no one, because no one's looking at him. She's behind him at that point. Yeah, yeah. But to me, I just think, well, you know, again, from he's a fan's that, point of view. He's doing that because he's practising it. He's practising a, a new... Because he's only just changed, so mm. I, I assume. Mm. Um, but he's also... He's just working out. Is but it's funny? also not just that. It's because he's been fighting in the Time War and his... Well, as we discover later, so this is retconning slightly, but regardless of whether it's John Hurt or whether it's Paul McGann or whether it's an earlier Christopher Eccleston, whoever's been fighting in the Time War has been doing it alone. Mm. It's been a long time since the Doctor's had a companion and he's practising engaging with somebody. Mm. But not in Seasons of War, isn't that? <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> what? Why is he actually chagging around or something? He might be. You have to buy the book to find out. Oh dear. I haven't read that far into it, if I'm honest. <laughs> what? <laughs> read it twice. Anyway, yes. I'm still waiting for it to come out in a print copy. It's coming, it's coming. But now there's some lovely touches with his ears and, you know, all this business. I th- you know, do you know what? There's that thing, isn't there, as to whether has he just changed? And and but what? I don't. I just don't think he's even bothered to look at his reflection. I think but it doesn't matter. The point yeah. of that yeah, bit yeah. is that yeah. Russell T Davis is saying to the fans, if you want to think of this as well, no, not even if you want to think of this as his first adventure. This is his first television adventure. Is a little nod of the head to the fact that it's not the actor you saw last time. No, yeah, and it's the scene since Peter Davison looking in the mirror. Never quite sure what you're going to get, that kind of thing, isn't it? I suppose. Tom yeah. Baker does that after John Pertwee at the start of Robot. Oh, yeah. Patrick Tran does that at the start of Power of the Daleks. Kind of. Mm. It's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they have it's to. It's a thing. Paul McGann sees himself in the mirror. Yeah, they all have to, <gasps> otherwise. But he's great. The only bit that. I, I mean. With his performance, there are a lot of occasions where he feels slightly awkward. And I think some people had a problem with that at first. And I have to say, I really enjoyed his performance the first time I watched Rose. But I did think it was awkward. And I thought, oh, is this Christopher Eccleston struggling with a part that he's not really right for? But I think by the time you get to things like Dalek, and especially by the time you get to the end of episode 13, and you see the reason why he's awkward... Because he's been travelling. And actually, Christopher Eccleston is playing awkward. He's not being awkward. No. He's playing awkward. Yeah. So he it's actually like, does like a really good job. effect, isn't it? Where everybody's yeah. thinking he's, he's a doddery old man. And yes, he had a few problems with his lines. But actually, when you hear him talk... He was as, playing doddery. There is. He's actually yeah. a good actor. There's, that, there's a tangible change, isn't there? When he's having that conversation when he's walking along with Rose and saying about... And then he stops, mm. and then when he walks away from her back to the TARDIS, his face completely changes. Oh, he mm. snaps back yeah. into the brilliant time serious, war doctor. Yeah, seriousness again. Yeah. The only thing that doesn't really work is uh, well, I th- actually the line he's gay and she's an alien. That's a great line that he plays really well, but then he struggles with the next line after that, mm. which is the one about the I can't remember what it was. The next line after that, whatever it was. Well, where he's looking through the magazine. Oh, the book. The book. Where he flicks book. through the book yeah, and says... That's got a sad ending. Yeah. That doesn't work. No. But the rest of that scene is not as bad as it's painted out. The stuff with the arm is often held up to be dreadful. Really? Actually, that acting is... I thought that worked really well. As comedy, that scene is just perfect. 
when I look at it, the timing in that and the beats in that are brilliant. And the as fact, I say, it's the, it's, do, the, it's the poppy first single. It's you know the levitating arm, yeah. If you yeah, think about it too much. Yeah, but if you tried acting with an arm against your face that isn't a person, mm. it's almost impossible to get it right. They both do it so well because you're well. There's that shot of there's, him. There's no resistance. With... It's a, it's just an arm, so mm. you have to pretend that it's really forcing the point of face. And there's this beautiful moment which you're probably about to say, where Rose just walks past and he's like looking at her, being strangled, trying to trying to get her attention. And his eyes are popping out of his head because it looks like he's being strangled to death. And she's not. Look at her and say, acting. "Stop messing around." It hadn't occurred to me. It's a simple thing, really. Is the whole thing where Mickey mucks around with it, doesn't he? And that's yeah. preempting what happens to the doctor. That's mm. why she ignores him because she's seen Mickey mucking. Yeah, she yeah. just thinks he's doing the same thing. <laughs> right, Mickey, you've brought him up. <coughs> I think he's absolutely fine in that episode. Yeah, he's grown on me. Actually, he's just another one. He, he used to. He's, in, he's... I, did, I absolutely detested him when I first saw him. But then I, I guess that's the character he's playing. So Yeah, he's playing the character and he's written in that. He is, you know, there's all this stuff now about um, Noel Clark saying because he had another job and the schedules changed or something. So he missed the read through and had to fly back and do the filming immediately after. I think there was more to it than that. I think there some personal problems in his life that Might have affected been. his performance. I think he but he that. said himself that he wasn't very good in it. No. I think he's a lot better. I think he's doing oh, yeah, himself no. a disservice I think, there. I think it was the character I didn't like. I just, I just thought, why if Rose is so amazing, why is she do? What's she doing with him? But then, as we said while we were watching it, we've all had, <laughs> we've all had idiot. Girlfriends at some point, haven't we? So yeah, and actually, on that note, that it felt really very natural their relationship, yeah. more natural mm. than any other one we've seen afterwards. You know, I don't think we've seen a more natural relationship between two people. I don't think Amy and Rory's natural. All I find stuff... that really difficult to believe. I really don't believe Danny Pink and Clara. But no, 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 no. I no, don't. I think that is. No, no, no. I don't. I don't think Clara would have gone for Danny. But anyway, that's just me. But um, I do. No, it's the only week. I think that's the only week thread in the it's whole. Because you that want Clara thing. for yourself. That's all that is. Yeah, well, it is. But anyway, um, yeah, but very, <laughs> they're very natural, it's natural together. It's natural together. It's a mm. natural kind of relationship of any. There's chemistry. Person. There's chemistry. Mm. <clears throat> the bits like, where they're larking around at the start, and yeah, I don't larking mean, around. <laughs> and I don't mean the stuff in Trafalgar Square. I mean when after the. Shop's blown up, and he comes around. Oh, what the play and he the wants feet. to go to the pub and yeah. watch the game. That just felt really natural and easy. Mm. It did. Yep. Yeah. It felt like you just had a little window into their life. Yeah. And you just accept it straight away. And that's good acting. That's good direction. Yeah. Off. That's not an actor who's underperforming. No. That's but, an actor who's being playing. And actually, we forget as well <clears throat> that when he becomes the Auton Mickey, that. Um, He's selling us the fact that he's an auton in this. You know, we, we believe he is actually plastic because of his strange acting, uh, you know, strange um, performance. But that's because he is actually a proper, properly good actor and he's doing a very good version of it. Do you know, the odd thing about that scene is that people said, you look at Mickey there, how the hell does she not realise that he's plastic? Yeah. Why would she expect him to be plastic? Exactly, but I think in the car is the. I understand the point. If you yeah, yeah, turn yeah. around and look at somebody in the car with that face, you'd think, "Oh my god, look, somebody's put makeup on." The thing is, she's already taken him for granted. Isn't but she? in the so, restaurant, it's don't good. forget. That good. <clears throat> don't forget though, when she gets in the car and she's just learned all this stuff from Clive, what she's doing there is she's got 
a lot of stuff going around in her head about mm. who the doctor is that she's just discovered that this guy is like this bringer of doom and destruction this alien from outer space who's going to possibly bring the destruction of the earth in his wake she gets in the car and she looks at mickey and it's daylight right i don't know if you've ever noticed this but if you sit down in a car in daylight and you look at the person sitting next to you they've got the light behind them yeah i may i may give you that <laughs> so we're I looking at mickey from outside the car and we that. can see clearly that he's plastic Ooh. but from inside the car she just basically Ooh, you, sees a silhouette just use science against that that's that's good and then when you get to the restaurant yes you get all that babe sweetheart yeah but that's that fine kind of stuff. because he actually by that point he still he looks he like doesn't, mickey he, he just yeah. looks a little bit odd he just looks like mickey with a slightly odd haircut yeah yeah and just slightly different on the makeup so that we can tell he's plastic yeah but she can't i thought it was great that, that and so when perfect. he starts doing that sweetheart babe all this kind of stuff if you were sitting there with your partner and they start doing that you wouldn't think your first would your first thought be oh my god my partner's been replaced by a plastic replica yeah. who's here to kill me or would your first thought be stop messing around yeah what are you doing yeah. I mean, again that was another natural reaction i think uh, a problem with a lot of um, episodes of sci-fi or whatever is that they're all films. Too many people accept the science accept section the, too easily. Accept it too easily. You know, um, let's just quickly go to something or watch the other day. I tell you, another example is that annoys me in, in fiction on TV. Watch Parallel, which I think is a new American TV series about parallel universes, right? Mm. And somebody was shot dead in a lift. Okay, and these characters. To be honest, that's probably the second or maybe first time they've ever seen anybody shot dead. Mm. Dead. Mm. And yet it, they just completely ignore it and carry on with the story. Like you do in all America <laughs> and Hollywood. You know, this, why don't they just have it for a moment? There's a really nice bit with Frank Skinner in The Mummy on the Orient Express where the doctor just spins around and says, right, let's get on with it. And he goes, well, hang on a minute, a guy has just died. Can we not just have this minute? Yeah. And it's a lovely moment, and I think actually that's really well played by Frank Skinner, nice and underplayed. And then the doctor says, "Nope, we've got no time to mourn. Let's get on with it. Mourn later." Did you ever see really Alias? Well done. The um, thing with um... have you ever seen the comedy version of that? That's a fifteen-minute comedy, which is just brilliant. But I've never the spy seen thing. It. Yeah, but I've never seen Alias. With... So. She's called Jennifer Garner. Is that right? Yeah. No. Was it yeah. good? Oh, it's very good. It's JJ Abrams. Oh, okay. But the very first episode of that, which is like a feature-length episode, which in American TV terms means an hour and ten minutes. But actually, the very first episode of that, because here's this girl who's just an ordinary girl who's going to be this spy, right? Doing lots of kick-ass bionic woman type stuff, right? But the first episode concentrates on the journey she has to undergo in order to become that person. Mm. And yeah, it does that. It does the thing where if somebody gets killed, she says, hang on, somebody just got killed. Yeah. And so you actually get that stuff. And I, I don't it, think Alias is... I enjoyed Alias. I don't think it's brilliant. And I think J.J. Abrams is a little overrated. But actually, he did a good job on that by selling you the character. Yeah, and you, I think you do <clears> need <throat> that. And that's, that's you know, we get that in, in rows. I mean, there's that fantastic reaction, which actually it's not just in there for the laughs or in there for the pathos even where she's talking about oh you forgot that he was my boyfriend and he's dead and you've just taken his head off and this sort of stuff mm. she genuinely is shocked at a it's just happened and b how alien the doctor is because he's an alien 
Mm. <laughs> and in fact, he's very Peter Capaldi. He's more Peter Capaldi, the Doctor, more Peter Capaldi in Christopher Eccleston's body in those first few um, than we realise. So people saying, oh, Peter Capaldi's rude and he's saying shut up and he's saying this, that and the other. <laughs> you pointed out. <laughs> yeah, one of the first things he says is shut up. Yeah. In that first episode. So well, not one of the first things he says in the episode, but it is his first episode so and one of his lines is shut up. It's basically going back to an older version of Christopher Eccleston almost. Essentially, yeah. And his... And his Slight miscomprehension of what it means to be a human being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what Peter Capaldi's like. Billy Piper then uh, said it really. Natural, fantastic, brilliant. I Yeah, going back to that, this first series, I think we tend to remember how she was during the kind of imperial phase. When I say the imperial phase, I mean in, in as much as it was David Tennant, it was getting bums on seats, it was, the ratings were sky high and character wise there was this thing of the doctor and, and rose going around having a having a jolly even in the you know in the nastiest of times of battling evil and things they still had this kind of almost smugness in series two yes yeah. and then series remembers. one it's totally different totally different which and, was and addressed again well, such such a measured measured performance from her her reactions in that first episode she's probably the star of the episode i'd say Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's called Rose. Well, yeah. <clears throat> yeah that was obvious, wasn't it? She doesn't sell the uh, saving the Doctor at the end, though. No, that's not great, but that's, that's not the necessarily... writing. Again, yeah, the sound. it is. It's Russell T. Davis. It's like, I need to show her saving him in some manner at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. What do I do? I'll stick her on a rope. I'd rather she didn't say about the A-levels and all that sort of thing. Just I, get on the rope. That Yeah, that almost sounded too... Yeah. Billy Piper on the ropes. Can't think of anything better. What it needed was for her to say, "I got a grade." She she's already learned by this point. These men are made of plastic, mm. and that they're being controlled by this creature that's in the thing. She needs to say at that point, not, "Oh, I got grade C, whatever, and here I am doing my gymnastics." What she needs to say at that point is, "I got grade C in chemistry," but you know what? I managed to learn enough to do this and then do something sciency yeah. that actually takes the plot that we've got so that the anti-plastic deus ex machina yeah. it becomes irrelevant. And if she does something at that point that actually uses science in order to sever the connection between the nesting consciousness and the autons, mm. then actually she properly saves the day and we believe it. But the way she just climbs on a rope and swings across and bumps into the Doctor and the Autons and the Autons happen to fall into the nesting consciousness but the Doctor doesn't. <laughs> yeah, That's a disappointment. It's those lines that jar with me though because for me, if she'd done it, she'd sort of looked around and you'd seen that moment where she thinks, oh, what the hell? I'm going to do something a bit different. And she just does it and he, and the Doctor says, that was impressive. And she says, yeah, who would have thought it? I mean, not get, didn't get any A-levels, blah, blah, blah. So she said it after. So she said so, it yeah. after. Yeah. That's, do you know what, Simon, you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's it. There was too much uh, too much description before she did the action. It needed to be after mm. that. Couldn't be the other way around, though, because, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it, was, because it was written to be intercut with the Autons threatening her mother. That's true. And after she's done the kick, the Autons shut down. So you couldn't. But, uh... but then there's that awkward thing where she had to hold the axe just that little bit longer than you would normally hold an axe for when your friends. She does it really well. Though, she's swinging it like she's preparing herself for the big swing. <laughs> she does it. As she manages to... it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
Mm. Yeah, like visual comedy doesn't work so well on a podcast, Lee. I just thanks for the that, attempt. Yeah. That's good though. Maybe you could have described it. The other thing is nudity is a get worst ever ending sort of thing. Is <laughs> that why the whole place blows up at the end? Don't, it's, don't it's real there. James Bond, don't isn't it? There. Yeah, because there's no reason for bits to blow up. No, it just has to. <laughs> well, nesting consciousness pretty big. Okay, and it's also using electronic transmitters to transmit its signal around the world. Okay, and it is controlling the autons. So whatever it's using to control the autons is shutting down at this point. Which is why you're right in saying that maybe Roche should have done something sciencey. It's only a matter of yeah, connecting two things together. She could say the only thing I ever did was um, make a, a, a series with a with a battery. You put these two things together and it blows stuff up. She said that it's more believable than the than the gymnastics. And in fact, by setting up the gymnastics thing in the first episode when I first watched it, I actually thought, oh. So she's not a gym gymnast, but she's going to be a bit more kind of energetic. Maybe there's a bit of a PE thing going on here. You were expecting her to be more like the bionic woman. Oh, oh yeah, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, but that's sort of this thing setting up the fact seconds. that she's going to be running around doing the kick-ass stuff. Yeah, and it never happened. No. Yes, going back to the subject of the building blowing up. If you have a battery in something and the battery blows up, then you know, other bits of the thing. I suppose that's the... But it's television, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's just something that occurred to me when I watched it. But it hadn't bothered me before. Camille Kajuri. She's playing a caricature. Yeah. But she plays it really nicely. (coughs) And again, there's an easygoing chemistry between her and Billy Piper and Noel Clarke. Mm-hmm. The three of them together have a very natural chemistry. There's some really lovely and funny dialogue, isn't there? She delivers that dialogue just unbelievably brilliant. I, I think you're right in saying that there was a little bit of filmic quality on uh, about this first episode. The way in which um, it could have been a, quite a soap opera way of, of, of playing playing the scenes, but actually her wandering in and the time in between them and what she says and how she does is actually like either a very, very uh, well-made American HBO or it's, a, it's filmic in the way that she delivers, delivers a line. So I don't think I'm sending this very well, but you know what I mean? When she comes in and says about skin as a Bible and all that. Yeah. It's the word cinematic yeah. instead of cinematic filmic. As opposed to filmic. Yeah. My favourite moment in the whole episode is the bit where she says, oh, this woman's on the phone and Rose says... <laughs> Yeah, give it here. And just turns it off and puts it down. That is my yeah. favourite moment in the whole yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Brilliant. It's all about the chemistry between the actors because yeah. it doesn't work if there's no chemistry between the actors because it looks like a setup. Yeah. But if there's chemistry between the actors, it feels like the character. Mm-hmm. It's believable. It's just good acting. It's just really good acting. And really good direction because, you know, people forget this is what the director does. First and foremost, his priority is... The actors and the performances. There's, a, there's the comedic set pieces in there. We know the doctor's standing at the doorway of of her room. Yes, yes. And then no. it all goes a bit. It all goes a bit. Confessions of a milkman, doesn't it? And then he, <laughs> he, he kind of just cuts her off. That's yeah. funny. That's funny. But also, re- again, really well played. Yes. Yeah. By her, that's her reaction when he says no and walks off as well. Is yeah, great. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a good reaction at the end, a little sneer. As a fan, you kind of think, brilliant, we've got a doctor who doesn't get involved with women. And, and that kind of, I know, and then it all 
doesn't go wrong, but it changes. He doesn't really get involved, not in that kind of level at all, during Series 1, though. No. Which mm. is the odd thing, because, like, Series 1, it's like moonlighting. When moonlighting... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But you've said th- this before, I think, yeah. However, but when moonlighting first comes on, you've got Bruce Willis and... Civil Shepherd. And for the... I now see I've not seen it since it was on, so I don't remember. Right. I would imagine that in the first series of that program the chemistry between the two is probably all in the actors rather than in the writing. And I should imagine that it's built up more in the writing as it goes on yeah, when the writers absolutely. become aware of the chemistry, right? They really didn't like each other in that first series. It's- quite antagonistic at times I seem to remember so again that's what's happening here with Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper obviously Russell T Davis has written it in such a way that you can read that there like they probably did in Moonlighting but he hasn't sold it to us and he's not made it ostentatious right Mm -hmm. and then because the audience picks up on it anyway and in spite of the fact that it doesn't really develop across those first 12 episodes, because uh, apart from anything else, you've got a complete diversion when Adam turns up. And then as soon as Adam's gone, you've got another diversion when Captain Jack turns up. So it's not like they've made anything of it in the series. But then by the end of the series, the audience has picked up on it so much that that kiss at the end of Parting of the Ways becomes the big moment that pretty much settles what Series 2 is going to be. And Series 2 starts with the kiss. It's interesting, isn't it? If Christopher Eccleston had stayed, would it have turned in the romance? Because let's face it, you know, the Doctor changes and there's there's a compatibility shift. All of what? a sudden, he's, yeah, the, yeah. he's the attractive young Doctor, isn't he? Quite interesting, yeah, you're right. But just before quite, you yeah, go in, Lee, I was just going to say, immediately after the kiss, mm. that scene in the TARDIS before he regenerates... They don't play on it there. They don't play on the kiss. No. They go back to what they were before the kiss. Mm. Right, Lee, sorry, go on. No, I was just saying it's interesting that none of us are even thinking about the fact that in terms of age, um, Rose was 19 in this, and Chris Rackerson actors age, what, 45, something like that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at... Probably just like, yeah, something yeah, around 26 that. 26 years difference. So if that was played in the real world, I mean, I, th- I think um, Rose's mum should be a bit worried. That's where I love that or line. Or not. That line. Because maybe that's... In Deep Breath where uh, Madame... Vastra. Vastra says about he was flirting with you when he looked all good looking and everything like that. And young. Yeah, yeah. And I like... Oh, Stephen yeah. Moffat's very good at pointing out things that mm. you don't even realise until he points them out. But the, the, with Eccleston being in his 40s and with her being in her 20s but playing late teens, that's something that was normal and every day. It's, it's played so well that you don't, you don't question it. Yeah, no, I mean a long Eight. time ago. Oh, when yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, talking yeah. a couple of hundred years ago, older men, young women all the time. And even now, there's still probably more of it than you think. We were born in the wrong time, weren't we? <laughs> well, but but what I mean is, it's something that's not so unusual 
that you need to be sold on it. You can accept it no. as long as the actors are playing it. Doesn't Rose's mum pick up on it at some stage where she sort of says about him? Yeah, you're going off travelling with an man or like sort of thing. Yeah, she does. And that's nice because it does get addressed. Um, but actually, it doesn't dwell on it and the relationship is natural enough and act, acted well enough for you to believe that there's a chemistry. Mm. It's only near the very end, she said, I want my doctor, that you realise that a love has, has blossomed of some kind. Mm. And of course, when he turns into David Tennant, it just makes it a whole lot easier because he's a bit younger. Um, not that much, but a bit. Yeah, so it's slightly more acceptable for the audience to, to, to go with that. But uh, He's boyfriend material all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. You know what we do when we talk about new episodes that we're reviewing? We give them scores. And when we did our Series 1 thing, we were putting them in order rather than scoring them. So we've never actually scored rows for the podcast. Let's score rows. Simon. Well, as an opening, because it's doing two jobs, isn't it? I mean, we're looking at it as an episode in its own right, and we're looking at it as being the first episode. So as the first episode, I'd give it a 9 out of 10. As an episode in its own right, it's okay. And it's a 7 out of 10. So I'm going to go bang in the middle of those two and go for an 8. Lee. I think I scored this at the top of the season um, when we when we did it when we were trying to um, decide which was the best episodes in that episode in that podcast. Sorry, I'm falling asleep. I will make sense. I promise. Um, <laughs> so How many years have we been doing this podcast? Suddenly, just stopped. Then my brain went. Ugh. Okay, a ten out of ten. Right, I... I don't find anything in there that's worth picking on that makes it any less than that. To me, it's absolutely blinding. I'm gonna. The reason I didn't say anything when Simon finished talking is because he said everything I was gonna say. I think, as a piece of television, it's stunning and it still stands up now, 10 years later. I think, as an episode of Doctor Who. It's lacking in certain things. And like I say, Rusty Davis not bothering to write. Okay, the story of what's happening with the Autons is very much deliberately in the background, but he still never bothered coming up with an ending for it. Mm. He just had, you know, one of the Autons falling over and dropping the anti plastic on the nesting consciousness. And for things like that, <laughs> I think it doesn't quite hold up as a piece of drama. And yeah, the stuff with the Doctor and Rose is just fantastic. So I'm going with a nine, actually, rather than an eight. I think I think it's pretty close. Hmm. If we were on non-integers, I'd have gone with an eight and a half. Do you know what? I wonder if we'd have scored it differently if it was just if we did it by memory alone. Because we, we, we literally have just watched it again. Well, I loved it when it was first on and would have given it a 10 out of 10 in 2005. But if you'd have asked me six months ago, I'd have probably given it a 7 or an 8. Because it had started to dim in my memory. But Mm. watching it just brings back how good it really is. I got sucked into it tonight and yet I'd only watched it the previous Thursday for Rosie 10. So, and it didn't, you know, it didn't jar on me. I didn't get bored with it or anything like that. Oh, I've had the... Most tiring weekend ever, and I thought, "Oh God, we're going to put this on, and I'm going to fall asleep on your sofa." Yeah. But no, I was alert throughout watching <laughs> this. Yeah, fantastic piece of television. 
Right. Oh, before we go on to these three emails that I've got, we therefore in two weeks, because we've done this with um, a Christopher Eccleston episode, mm. we said just before we started recording, we'll do a David Tennant one and a Matt Smith one from before we started reviewing them, which is from series seven onwards as well. And what we said was we would choose three middling episodes from David Tennant. So these aren't episodes that do anything particular. None of them are from two-parters. They're not particularly bad ones or particularly good ones, but they're fairly middling ones because it would be interesting to revisit something that we thought of as middling and see actually how good it is. So we're going to give the listeners of the podcast a choice of three episodes, and this will be up on our Facebook page, and you will decide which of those three episodes we watch in a fortnight's time because I've got something else coming up next week if all goes to plan. So in a fortnight's time, we'll reconvene to watch a David Tennant, according to your choice, and then two weeks after that, we'll do the same with a Matt Smith. Now, the three David Tennant episodes we thought you could choose between were from Series 2, Tooth and Claw, from Series 3, Gridlock, or from Series 4, The Unicorn and the Wasp. Those were the three we decided, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, so we thought all of those were not spectacularly good, not spectacularly bad. We'll watch one of those before our episode in a fortnight, and we'll see how it stands up. So, we've got some emails, and we've got quite a lot of words here on these two pieces of paper, so let's... (laughs) Dylan Deadline Reese says, Dear Blue Boxers, Thanks very much for your 10-year anniversary podcast. It's amazing to think the show has been back for so long and how much fun we've had on the way. Considering how fraught the last few years of Doctor Who's original run and the wilderness years were, it's no surprise that Doctor Who fans still panic at every twist and turn in front of and behind the cameras. Compare those years to the last decade, decade and it's amazing how few dramas, at least publicly, have befallen the show. Sure, there was Eccleston's shock departure, the debacle of the missing season in the anniversary year, and the devastating news that Totally Doctor Who had been (laughs) cancelled. What an awful show. But really, it has been drama-free, and it looks like the show can only go from strength to strength. It's a huge money spinner for the Beeb, and a massive hit worldwide. I think it's safe to say the show has never been safer. Actually, I'm going to pause there. I was listening on another podcast. I think it was Radio Free Scaro. And I know they listen to this, so I'll address it here. Why not? Because I forgot (laughs) to email them afterwards. And they were saying on this other podcast, whatever it was, that it's a funny situation whereby Doctor Who doesn't get to spend all the money it makes. Well, the fact is Doctor Who doesn't get to spend any of the money it makes Mm. because... Everything the BBC sells, regardless of what programme it is related to, goes back into the BBC in general's coffers. Mm. And so when Doctor Who has its budget allocated by the BBC, that is Doctor Who's budget and it doesn't get augmented by anything Doctor Who makes. And there is a very good reason for this, which is kind of to do with the way the BBC's run, and that is this. Doctor Who, I think I've brought this up on the podcast before, but a couple of years ago, so it's Mm. worth going over again. Doctor Who is the kind of programme that lends itself easily to merchandise. Mm. 
the BBC News and weather reports, as an example, aren't. You don't get action figures of Moira Stewart showing my age. <laughs> Angela Ripper with interchangeable legs. You do not get action figures of Moira Stewart, nor can you buy Moira Stewart underpants. Mugglefish. <laughs> there we go. So, a programme like Doctor Who would have an unfair advantage because of the nature of the oh, subject. Fiona Bruce figure. <laughs> you can buy a Fiona Bruce figure. It's labelled Madame Vastra. Oh. Huh? Uh, but the point is if all programs were allowed to sell merchandise in order to augment their budgets then there would be a real disparity between the way the money is spent Mm. and things like things like the news are more important than Doctor Who and it would just become so lopsided. The way the BBC works is that everything has to have a fair shake of the dice. Yeah. Mm. So Doctor Who's the money that Doctor Who's makes, Doctor Who makes, goes back into the general BBC coffers. Now something's happening in the fairly near yes. future that is going to change the way that works, but hopefully is going to do it in an intelligent way that doesn't upset the boat so much that other programming suffers mm. because of it. And I think what they're doing here, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but they're going to change the way they account for production. Yeah. Is it BBC Studios? It's going to become an yeah. entity in its own right. It's going to become yeah. an independent body in the way that BBC Worldwide is, probably eventually. Which is basically a reshuffle of the way things are accounted for which could be a great thing or a terrible thing no what i think they're trying to do is ameliorate against the fact that the license fee isn't growing in line with inflation and doesn't look set to so in order to save having to draw in person under Stephen moffat doctor who's become a lot cheaper to make than it was under russell t davis and that's because the purse strings have been drawn in. This allows, sort of conversely to what I was saying just now, this allows Doctor Who, by using some of that money that it does make, but just a small portion of it, would allow it to regain the kind of budget that it had under Russell T. Davis. Mm. And so it puts it it re-levels the playing field mm. after budget cuts caused by license fee you know, freezes it changed the playing field it's tricky isn't it because it takes me back to the days of college where i remember talking to one of my tutors and he was talking about the fact that every year their budget would be cut very slightly because yeah because they would look at it and say well you're being successful on the money we've given you there so we're going to give you a little bit less because you yeah. you're obviously doing okay on it and you and it's it's a really Tricky balancing act. I work, yeah, same account, thing, I work yeah. for the council, mate. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but it. when people yeah, talk yeah. about whether BBC should be properly privatised and what have you, and um, you know, and, and, and turned into a business <clears> completely, <throat> is so well, such dangerous ground. I think that's my own personal opinion. But well, by running BBC Studios, that kind of offsets the threat of the BBC having to taking advertising. Mm. 
to start subsidising itself. Oh, thank God for that. Because that threat has been not sort of ostentatiously hanging over the BBC's shoulders for a little while. It's one of those things that's always in the background, the shadow of it's there. The BBC takes in advertising. And mm. if it were to do that, the BBC would probably take in advertising in a manner that wouldn't necessitate having advertising breaks. But nevertheless, it would still happen. But I think by independentizing, mm. what's the word for independentizing, Lee? Works in a library? Knows know. nothing. Independentizing. By making. Yeah. The studio production of BBC programmes independent in the same way as selling of those programmes to the public that BBC Worldwide does, you're kind of offsetting certain roads down which the BBC might be forced to go if budgets were to continue being so, cut in the way they are now. Yeah, are you saying that there could be a chance in the future then that Doctor Who could fund itself? BBC worldwide. Well, ultimately, eventually, possibly it could happen. It'll be one of the best, most richest TV programmes. Most richest. Oh. Well, this is why I say it's a really tricky balancing act because I would, I would <laughs> hate, I would hate for it it's... to be money led. A because certain decisions would be made within the show for it to make more money because it'd be treated like a business, and B yeah. that you you remove that inventive streak where people are given a certain amount of. Do you know what I mean? If you're given a keyboard with so many sounds on it, you're more likely to go out and stick it through a few pedals to get a few extra sounds out and come up, come up with something new. Whereas if you're just paying yeah. a load of money for the most expensive keyboard out there because it's got the most amount of sounds, that doesn't necessarily call for a or create well, a... Yeah, once you have the worry of having to make sure that it absolutely makes money all the time, otherwise it will die, mm. then you can stump the creativity of the project quite easily. But I don't think it will because it's got... It's, it's already got a fantastic... Legacy, which you can just go. Well, how, how many other TV stations have a BBC Four? You know, where they get these programs which don't necessarily get a huge uh, viewership or whatever you call it. Mm. Um, Look at Sky Arts. Used to be Bark and Beethoven, and now it's Queen and ACDC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then do you know what? You know, without going into the subject of people hitting each other and whether they should keep their jobs or not, we're not, I'm going to touch on that because enough's been said, but there have been a few comments on that side of things where I just think where they literally say about, you know, Doctor Who going over to something like Sky. No, thank mm. you. No, thank you. Doctor Who won't move like that. It can't. Look what happened in the 90s when they tried to move it and it wasn't even moving away from the BBC. No, yeah. Right, we better get back to Dylan because if it is 10 past 12, I'm going to be in serious trouble when I get home. <laughs> you are. <laughs> So, Dylan says, so, I have a question for you. Where do you see the show going in the next ten years? Ooh. I'm not talking about the Doctor Who story universe, but the franchise itself. Will it become a movie? Will it go off the air? Will it return to its natural home on the Give a Show projector? Actually, I think uh, we've just answered that question, haven't we? we probably have. Accidentally. Mm. A bigger picture. The really bigger, bigger picture. Because he goes on and says what he thinks. He says, personally, I think Moffat and Capaldi will ride it out for two more seasons and maybe some specials. Then the production will move over to BBC Studios and we will see a big change in the series' global visibility. Mm. With more money being available from BBC Worldwide, the production values and budget will increase to match the likes of Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. They will cast an internationally bankable name like Hugh Laurie or Sean Bean in the role to really push its profile up in the States and worldwide. No, they won't. 
We will get a good few years of that, with a couple of Doctors before the show takes the leap to the big screen. Maybe they will cast a Hollywood A-lister in the part, and there will be a few movies before the show disappears from the screens for a while. It won't whimper out in silence like it did before, but have a triumphant finale and then take a rest, before returning refreshed and renewed for a whole new generation. No doubt written by somebody who is currently in primary school and who will piss <laughs> off all those stuck-in-their-ways Capaldi and Smith fans. <laughs> So what do you think? I'm not saying that this is what I want or what I think the show needs, and I could be sprouting a load of old Donald Tosh, but it's a programme that depends on change, and with the changing nature of TV, it won't stay the same forever. Keep up the good work, Dylan Deadline Reese. P.S. The podcast is turning into a carry-on film with all its innuendo and schoolboy sniggering. Sharak Jizz is a bad influence on you all. Please try and tone it down as I am a shy and sensitive boy who can't stand all this filth that is coming in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see the way you spelt that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. That is actually the name of my first John Cock album. Anyway. Um, coming in my ears. Coming in my ears, yeah. That's oh, yeah. the best of John Cock, coming in my ears. Is that the, coming in your uh, ears? Well, um, is that the same play on words as um, "prick of your ears"? That's a fairly. Um, it is well done. That's a fairly realistic forecast, if you ask me. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a forecast. It's a pred- it's predictive. You know, we have no idea. Yeah, that's what's the idea happen. of forecast. Yeah, I know, but it, it can change. Kind of. thing is, this is just an idea. Of it's one person's vision. I don't particularly like that vision actually because it it almost wraps the whole thing up, and then that's it. And then I'm going to be. Well, like Dylan 90. says he doesn't necessarily like that, and that's not his no, choice. No, 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 but... no, but that's right. So if though going back to the subject of BBC Studios, if Doctor Who becomes self-financing, yeah. what's the obvious thing to do? Make a movie that potentially makes a couple of hundred million pounds. And uh, if you can run a movie alongside a series, right. then so you can, your movie is not just paying for your series, but you it's can, also paying for the other things. Have done it. So the X Files um, had a couple of films, and now the series is coming. And what's back. the big difference between the X Files and Doctor Who? In the X Files, when you did an X Files movie, you're basically having to take an episode of the TV series and expand it to mm. twice the length. But because of the characters and because of the setup. Although you can do things like spaceships, what have you, you can't really change the plot that much because X-Files has a format. Doctor Who, on the other hand, although it has a kind of a format, it doesn't have the same kind of a format as programmes like the X-Files does. So with Doctor Who, if you want to do a Doctor Who movie, you can actually do what, what actually I think Big Finish should do more of and I think the Virgin Novels should have done more of in that you use the medium within which you're working in order to tell the story mm. and a story that couldn't be told in another medium. Absolutely. So a Doctor Who movie wouldn't just be, I don't know, the stolen earth and journey's end stitched no. together without a cliffhanger. A Doctor Who movie would tell a story that a television, even two episodes of the television mm. program couldn't. And that might sound like that's a stupid thing to say because you're probably asking yourself, <laughs> What can a movie do that the television can't? I was just thinking from... lots. Locations I was thinking go Cecil B. DeMille. I was thinking go big. You you yeah. You'd go Lord of the Rings effects. You'd go for the Iron Legion or something like that. You do all massive. the yeah. You do all the things that you we only see glimpses of. So we see the Doctor on an alien planet for about three seconds, beautifully rendered. We only sit for about three seconds. Riddick, right? 
those kind of beautiful vistas and brilliant worlds that are being created with these millions of dollars in Riddick completely wasted on a crap plot and, and storyline, but they look great. Why not have that Doctor Who? You could have Doctor Who t- does time Planet of the Dead. Yeah, it's a desert. It looks it's like an alien a planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, my point is not you spend the, the money. No, no. Time. You, you can. Do all kinds. No, but you can travel around the world on the television. Yeah, but it looks like TV. There's, there's, there is a way of My making it bigger. My point is, you tell a kind of story yeah. that you wouldn't be able to tell in an ongoing series. The because in Gallifrey. No, no. I mean about the people. In an ongoing series, you're either tied in to telling a story like you've got with Clara in Series 8, where something is going on with the companion that informs where the stories go. Mm-hmm. Or you do something like you did with... Donna Noble, where you don't have an ongoing storyline with the companion and her interaction with somebody else that informs where the stories go, but instead you're telling a development across the series of a character. In a movie, you're forced to tell that entire development in 120 minutes. So what you do is you alter the focus of the writing to reflect that. Which doesn't mean to say that you make it all about the companion, but what does do is mean you tell, and I'm always saying this, the story has to come out of the premise, rather than you just throwing loads of ideas at a premise and hoping that they all stick. So your premise is something that allows for you telling an entire series worth of stories in 120 minutes, Mm. and you develop your story out of that. That's what I'm saying. It's got nothing to do with where the money's spent. You do spend the money, obviously, yeah, 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 because yeah. it's a movie. Yeah. But no, you have to tell a different kind you of do, a story. You have to wrap an entire story up. In it's it. like Smallville. It's like the difference between Smallville and Superman the movie. Yeah. That's exactly. what you're talking about. That's the difference between Doctor Who on TV and Doctor Who at the cinema. I think it could be done. I think it'd be great at the cinema. It'd be fantastic. But you wouldn't want to... Why would you want to recast? Well, you'd have to recast if you're going to ruin movies and TV. At the same time, because same you can't time, have your actors yeah. in the same place at the same time. I would, I, I've said this before, I would have a series of movies with one Doctor and a television series with another Doctor. And let's face it, we all know that there have been 11, 12, whatever number of Doctors. We all know the Doctor can have different faces and can travel in time. So there's absolutely no reason whatsoever why you couldn't have one Doctor on the telly and another Doctor in the cinema and... Programs like Smallville that has run concurrently with movie versions of Superman. It's funny, isn't it? Because you get those Marvel universes that have had characters and sorry and development throughout you know sixty or seventy years. I mean, as if you're a comic fan, the amount of development that's going on through you know say like the Green Lanterns or or um, you know Spider Man or whatever, you get all these millions and millions of stories and these developments going all the way through. It's funny that Doctor Who's never taken that path. It has stuck very strictly with its continuity. Exactly, and it doesn't need to. You look at, if somebody can accept whoever it is in Smallville and whoever it is in Superman Begins and Christopher Reeve and the guy from the 50s, if somebody can accept all those different people as Superman when Superman is supposed to be the same person and couldn't accept two different people playing the Doctor at the same time, even though he's supposed to be able to have as many faces as he wants... 
and he travels in time. So if you've got Peter Capaldi on the telly in 2016 in one story and, I don't know, Hugh Grant in the movies in 2016 in another story, that's not a contradiction. So audiences are prepared to accept one actor on the telly and another actor in the movie playing the same part and Doctor Who even allows for it in the fiction there's no reason why you couldn't have those two things running concurrently and the movie would pay for the TV series it's it's not rocket science you've also got the option as well of say Peter Capaldi gets to the end of his, his run and then he regenerates into another doctor there's no reason why the film couldn't then be Peter Capaldi can then go off and make the film of it well, no reason it couldn't mm. although it'd be more likely to be Matt Smith or David Tennant but the principle's acceptable. But I would just have it in the movie. You just don't say what number he is. He's some future Doctor unnumbered. Mm. Anyway, we've got two more emails and time really is getting on now. Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Box podcast team. Thank you, J.R. Lee and Simon, for your excellent 10 New Years podcast. I mm. really enjoyed your comments. Thank you. I was very happy to see Capaldi at number one, and I'm sure his next series will be even better. It was also good to see the first series doing so well, as I think it has some of the very best episodes of New Who. You brought up a very good point about the next showrunner. Let's just hope another genius will be found soon and the show can continue after Stephen Moffat eventually leaves. That's all for now. Cheers, guys. P.S. Thanks for your tribute to Leonard Nimoy in your era's podcast. It was the best tribute I'd heard about the great man. It meant a lot to me. Oh. Oh, nice. Nice to email we've had for a long time, isn't it? No, Jared Gray always writes as nice emails. What does he? Oh, well, all the rest of them are <laughs> And that brings us to... Dear Blue Boxers, I have just heard your latest podcast and it was quite funny. I enjoyed it. You had several letters as well as mine, including one from Keychain Hyman, who has something to do with the girls' lady garden. Oh, God, this is Sharon Cheers, isn't it? He likes my emails and I think he is very nice. <laughs> You were all talking about libraries, and Lee said he had some all-time books. I have some all-time magazines, which are magazines I look at all the time. Simon said he liked squatting over books and used to get a celebration. <laughs> I knew that would come up. I think, I think Simon and me would get on well, as well as we also seem to be quite similar. He said that surely if you've taken it out at least ten times, then you should be able to keep it. I have suggested. The same thing to several girls after getting it out ten times. But all they did was call the police and run away. Once again, I printed this off in a hurry and I've made the mistake of not pre-reading it. <clears throat> Simon said he had two knobs and an osteopath. I... <laughs> you have no idea how close that is to the truth. <laughs> I had to look up what that was, and it said it was a gentle, hands-on approach based on the principle that the way your body moves influences how it functions, which I suppose you would need if you had two knobs. That is probably why he said he was sitting on the hydrant in front of the Liberian. Lee is a Liberian, apparently, so he probably saw it happen. Keychain said that he shot the doctor's wife in the face. I had a doctor once who had a wife like that. <laughs> I liked her a lot, but when the doctor found out, he gave me some tablets, which made me go all funny. Lee said that he liked watching J.R. Bend and said that he was all stiff. This happens to me every time I watch Clara Bend, and I am just sad that she wasn't travelling in the old TARDIS with the glass floor, as that would make me go back. Oh, my word. 
Amy Pong did that with her legs, although Lee didn't understand why she was a model after travelling with the Doctor. I expect it is because she likes to show... No, I'm not reading the rest of that. <laughs> you then went on... <laughs> oh, no, don't read that. Okay. You then went on to have a poll. It's funny, though. I have one of those, too. And in one of them, Clara came first. This made me very happy, but also confused as I thought it wasn't very realistic because if I was with Clara, then she would never come first. Lee said that Clara... This is so utterly juvenile. Lee said that Clara was very lucky on two fronts, but oh. he is wrong. It is us who are very lucky with her fronts. She was in a show called The Top Room, which were proved that. My top five would be one, Clara. Two, Jenny, who likes to pose in her smalls for a lizard. Three, River, who is very randy. Four, Rose in New Earth. And five, Martha. I would be happy to be stuck in a lift with those five. I am back again after having taken a short break to do something. Anyway... <laughs> Lee said that David Tenninch was full of pump. Maybe he has been watching Clara in the top room as well. Lee also said that his life goes up and down. I envy Lee. Your friend, Sharak Jeers. I didn't meet him in the street. You had to edit that fairly heavily, didn't you? I was about to say as he jumped the shark, but even that would become something else. You'd be careful of anything you say. (laughs) Jumping anything. (laughs) And that's the end of the emails. Glad you left that at the end. People can turn off then, can't they? Not miss any of it. And that's the end of the podcast. I've been JR. I've been Lee. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.